I am so excited to get to deliver this message to you this morning. I get to be your, your life group teacher this morning, but I also get to be a lawyer. I feel right at home. I'm going to talk lawyer with you this morning. The title of the lesson is The Audacity of the Resurrection. If, if your God cannot resurrect from the dead, there's not a doubt in my mind your God is definitely too small. I'm not even sure if your God does not resurrect from the dead, I'm not sure he's qualified to be a God. If your God can't resurrect from the dead, then then your life is not what it should be. Let's go from here. I want to know what really happened. Now, what really happened is a question that's been asked in a lot of different formats. Excuse me. In a lot of different formats, in a lot of different times, in a lot of different places. The battle between what he said and what she said. And trying to figure out what the truth really is. What were the historical facts? How do we know what really happened? Well, there have been different ways man has tried to figure that out. We can go back to Salic Law. And in Salic Law... There was what's called a Judicium Di, which means let God be the judge. And one of the, the ways this might be done, for example, is you stick your, if you are, uh, let's say you're accused of a crime. And there are no witnesses. So the truth has to be determined what happened. Well, the idea was that God would protect the innocent. So get a pot of boiling water and stick a rock in it. And you stick your hand in and pull out the rock. And if you can do it without getting burned, you must be innocent because God protected you. Anybody else would get burned. Now that wasn't the only way to resolve disputes, but the idea of getting God in the middle of it was uh, used with that or other religious rituals. Then there was Lex Alimonorum, which was one codification of a Frank or German code, law code, and what it said is, the same type thing, God will protect the innocent. So if you want to know between he said, she said, who's right, let them fight it out. And whoever wins in the duel or the combat must have won because God protected them. And that must be who was right. Now there came a time where the church at least said, no, 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 what we need to do is let wise men try these cases. And it certainly wasn't unique to the church. It had been done in other areas. We know King Solomon decided the issue of who got the baby, who was truly the mom. It was a she said, she said, instead of a he said, she said. But both claiming to be mother of this baby, Solomon says, split the baby in the middle, give each of them half, thinking that the woman who said, no, 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 spare the life of the child, was surely the mother with a maternal love. But the idea of letting a wise man do it was the basis of the Catholic Inquisition. Let the wise people of the church decide what the truth is. The he said, she said. And so you had the Inquisition as well. Now if we were reading history, we who are in the Western civilization culture of America know that something profound happened in England, Great Britain, in 1215. In 1215, and that's not the best slide I could have done, in 1215, King John 
in the midst of a rebellion by the barons and the power structure of his land, was confronted with this magnificently large uh, uh, charter of liberty called in Latin the Magna Carta. And in the Magna Carta were a number of different phrases and, and claims and, and clauses that recognized rights that the king would bind himself and the crown to. I have pulled out clause number 39. It became clause 29 in the 19 and in the 1225 version. But in the original version of the Magna Carta, 1215, it was clause 39. If you read Latin, you'll be able to read the nullus liber homo capiatur vel impresentator aut disciatur. My Latin's pretty weak. But it's up there. Let me tell you what it says in the Magna Carta. It says, no free man shall be captured or imprisoned or dispossessed of what he has, deceased fit a little easier, or outlawed, or exiled, or deprived of his standing in any way, no force will be used upon him unless there's been a judgment by his peers or under the law. This is the beginning of trial by jury. 1215 Magna Carta, a recognition that you cannot be dispossessed of what you have. It can't be taken from you. You can't be thrown in jail. You can, the king can, or the crown or the authorities cannot simply take it unless a jury of your peers has said otherwise. Now, it took some refinement over the centuries. But juries, over time, became what we call in legal circles the finders of fact. The judge decides the law, takes legal training to know the law, but you don't have to have legal training to be on a jury. In fact, it's almost frowned upon. To be on a jury, you need to be an ordinary, common person with ordinary common sense because history has shown that you will make the best determination of what really happened. You can better establish the facts if you are not clouded in your thinking by some particular expertise, by some particular affiliation, or by some great extra knowledge that others might not have. And so the establishment of facts by juries became very, very important. So important that if you were to read the Declaration of Independence, one of the reasons our forefathers said we were going to declare ourselves independent of the King of England was the fact that the King was depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of a trial by jury. Together with our Constitution, we're passed a number of initial amendments. The Seventh Amendment says, In suits at common law, the right to trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact, no fact, tried by jury shall otherwise be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. You still have to apply the law. 
But the finding of fact by a jury is sacrosanct in America and in American jurisprudence. I've practiced law for almost 30 years. And I can tell you that the jury system is not perfect. And you can always find a problem with it somewhere, somehow. But you read in the paper and you watch TV about the problems. You don't read in the paper and watch TV about the millions of times it works correctly. It is the best system that human civilization has ever devised for determining what really happened. What are the facts of the case? What is the historical reconstruction? So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for you to check in as jurors. Because we're going to ask what really happened to Jesus. And you get to decide what really happened. Now, if this were a trial to a jury, the jury, as Judge Clinton would instruct them, he's sitting up here on the front row, the jury would be in a position to listen to the evidence. The argument of the lawyers may help illuminate minds, but Lawyers' arguments are never accorded weight of evidence. It's just lawyers trying to help persuade based upon the evidence. The evidence is something else altogether. There are generally two kinds of evidence. If we go to the law books and look it up, there is direct evidence. Now, direct evidence are witnesses, they're documents... They're people who are going to testify and speak to directly the issue in dispute. In addition to direct evidence, there's what's called circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence means it's not an eyewitness. It's not a witness who directly testifies on the issue. Rather, it's a reasonable inference that you can make from the facts. Here are the facts we can reasonably infer. Let me give you an example. If I were to come to you this morning with, with uh, 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 this statement, it's raining outside, that would be direct evidence that it's raining outside. There's a witness here who's telling you it's raining outside. I might even have a, a printout from a website. It's raining outside. And I've got a document then to show you. That's different than if 3,000 people come in here to worship, all carrying umbrellas that have water dripping off them, with water over their face and heads, wiping it off, taking off raincoats, and all coming in, muttering about how horrible the weather is and how wet they got just coming in from the car. From that, you might reasonably infer it's raining outside. That would be circumstantial evidence. The circumstances lead to that reasonable influence. You with me? you got to understand this because I'm going to ask you what happened. And I want you as a jury, the best finders of fact in the history of civilization, 
The best system that mankind's ever come up with. The system that we use to determine whether or not someone lives or dies. This system is good enough that we will have a death penalty in America, in different states, based upon a jury. So let's start. Let's look at the witnesses and the documents. Now, if you were on a jury, what the judge would tell you before you did your duty is he would say, with the witnesses, you get to judge their credibility. Are they reliable? Are they credible? Is it someone who comes off believable? Or is there something about them that makes it, I'm not quite so sure. Generally, they won't come in and testify, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you? God, and with fingers crossed, say, I do. Psych! You know, that generally is not there. But, Oh, in a trial, it might be the person who won't look at anybody and is kind of shifty. It might be hesitancy in the voice. It might be a number of things. Here are some general things I've found in my uh, uh, many trials to be true. One, jurors will, will obviously take note of the mental condition of the witness. In fact, some witnesses are deemed not even mentally competent to testify. But the mental capacity and the mental condition and and whether or not the witness seems to to have honesty in their favor, that's certainly an element that jurors would consider in establishing the credibility. A second thing are the motives. Does this witness stand to gain anything? There was one case I was trying in San Antonio where the witness was on the stand. And he was an expert witness. He was paid to testify. Paid by the other side. And I asked him in front of the jury, is it true you're getting paid to say this? He says, well, I'm not getting paid to say it. I'm just saying it and getting paid. I said, oh, come on. He says, well, I'm a college professor. That's my real job. But occasionally I, I uh, get uh, uh, retained, which is the polite way of saying they're paying me. I get retained to testify, which is fine. I mean, I had retained experts too. It's admissible. But this one went a little further. I said, yeah, Mr. College Professor, why don't you tell the jury how much money you make as a college professor? A uh, hundred and some odd thousand dollars a year. I said, yeah, now you tell them how much you make testifying each year. Oh, uh, I don't like to give that number out. I said, I don't care. You have to. And he says, no, 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 I don't have to. And the judge leaned into the microphone and said, you have to. And he said, well, I don't know. I don't keep up with that and I don't do my own taxes. I said, we'll take a round number. He said, well, I don't really want to. The judge made him. This fellow makes millions of dollars a year singing the song of whoever's playing him. He's what I call the jukebox witness. You put in enough money and you can pick the song you want him to sing. You know, what's the motive? 
Why is this witness saying this? Is the witness saying this because uh, uh, they're looking to make money? Or they don't want to lose money? Or they don't want to go to jail? Or they want to send someone else to jail? What are the motives? Another thing, the character. Now there are, this is so important for juries to look at the character that there are rules of evidence set up about when you're allowed to say, hey, this person's a pathological liar. Here's time after time after time that they've lied about everything they could lie about. And if I can show they're a pathological liar to you, then the odds are as a jury you'd sit there and say, well, that really undercuts the credibility of what they're going to say. Fair? Character. Then here's another thing that's credible. Let's compare the testimony of one witness to another. Let's do a comparison. One says the light is green. One says the light is red. And then five more say the light is green. Hmm. That sort of lends some credibility to the ones that are all consistent. So these are some of the things that you look at with credibility. Now I want to talk to you about a second legal idea. By the way, I don't know that you get credit for law school if you just put down that you went to this class today, but it's possible. I'll sign your letter if you want to try. Hearsay. Here's what is direct testimony. I saw him take the knife... And whacker, cutter. That's direct. I saw it. I'm an eyewitness. This is hearsay. You know, someone told me he took the knife and cut her. That's hearsay. General rule in a courtroom. A jury is not allowed to hear hearsay testimony. Because it's not deemed credible enough. The idea of what someone else said is not something you generally get to hear unless it meets certain exceptions. Because the law has recognized that there are times where what someone said that was heard is admissible. It is credible. It is valid enough to where it's worthy of being listened to by the trier of fact, by the decider of history, by the ones who make the decision what really happened. Now, what are those exceptions? One exception is if it was given in another trial or another proceeding. If someone said something in a court proceeding or in, in some type of a trial where it was important and they could have been uh, uh, punished for not telling the truth, then that makes you give credibility to what that person said, even if you're not hearing it straight from that person. Another major exception. If someone says something that's contrary to their personal interests, you generally don't say something that's contrary to your personal interests. You know, if you're... If you're if I'm fighting with Mike Riddle over who has this $20, whose is it? 
Now, I'm going to argue it's mine. It's got Andrew Jackson on the front, and he was on the front of my $20 bill. So I think this must be mine. But Mike Riddle says, well, Andrew Jackson just happened to be on the front of my $20 bill, too. So we're going to fight about it. But I tell Randy, hey, Randy, I know it's Mike's. I know it belongs to him. But I'm not going to give it to him because I want it. I have just made a statement to Randy that's contrary to my interests. And Randy could get up and testify in a case between me and Mike. Hey, Lanier told me it was Mike's. And that's admissible at that point, even though it's hearsay, because the odds are I would not say something against my interests unless I believed it. And you might be saying, yeah, but what if Randy just made that up? Well, then that's Randy lying. So you go after Randy. But if you, you can decide, hey, does, does Randy really hear that? Did, 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 you, know, you can make all of those decisions because Randy's there testifying to you. But if I'm not, if I'm not available to testify and I've made a statement contrary to my interest, you're allowed to hear someone else say what I said. You with me? Hey, wash hearsay. Now let's talk about expert witnesses. This is called junk science. See, in cases, there are times where you do need an expert to come in and testify. That case I was telling you about in San Antonio involved, I represented a fella who was driving this massive piece of equipment that's used to make roads. And the equipment, by our testimony, bounced up and down because the front tires and the whole front drive on it locked up while he was driving 20 miles an hour. We had witnesses that the machine buckled and just bucked up and down. It crushed a vertebra and left him paralyzed from the waist down. Really, really sad situation. Now, the, we had our engineers who got up there, but a judge will not allow just anybody to testify about science. The courts recognize that you can pay people to say things at time that are totally outrageous and have no basis in reality. And so the court is, is responsible, the judge is responsible for keeping junk science out of the courtroom. The judge has to make an initial decision. Is this reliable based upon what we know about the world? Is it published in peer-reviewed literature? Is it, is it subject to testing? There are lots of factors, and then the judge makes a reasonable decision based upon that. Junk science, not allowed in. Real science allowed in. Next. You cannot let bias, sympathy, or prejudice affect your verdict. You need to make the decision based upon the facts. And a jury is told that. I would have won that San Antonio case without putting on a single witness other than the wife of my client. If I was allowed to win it based upon bias, sympathy, and prejudice. Because all you had to know was the effects of that paralysis. That to go to the restroom, my client had to go catheter, he had to insert a catheter every four hours during the day so that he could uh, clear, clear his bladder. 
Void, thank you, his bladder. We have a nurse up here. I, it, it, his wife had to digitally evacuate his bowels. It was absolutely horrendous. And just the bias and the sympathy and the prejudice alone would make you vote for my client. But the judge properly told the jury, you're not allowed to let that influence your decision. And if you think it might, you're not allowed to serve on the jury. Because you've got to look at the facts. The facts are the issue. You've got to decide this based upon the evidence. Nothing more and nothing less. Sense? Make sense? Don't we have a great court system? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that how you would hope it would be if you ever needed it? Last but not least, the burden of proof. Whoever is trying to win in a court proceeding, whether it be a prosecuting attorney in a criminal proceeding or whether it be a plaintiff in a lawsuit or or in a domestic dispute, a complainant against another, Whoever's trying to change the way things are is required to do so by some burden of proof. If you get nothing else out of this lesson today, I want you to pay attention to this. If I want to prove to you a mathematical proof, I can generally do it to 100% certainty. 2 plus 2 is 4. If you doubt it, take $2, add $2 to it, and tell me how many dollars you have. It's four. It's, you can do that all day long. It will never be five. It will never be six. It will always be four. C squared equals A squared plus B squared. The Pythagorean theorem works. To 100% certainty, it is. And there are things in the scientific world that come so infinitesimally close to 100% certainty, we just regard them as factually true. But that's science. That's not rebuilding history. That's not deciding what really happened. There is nobody, if, if you need 100% certainty to ever convict anyone of a crime, no one will ever be convicted. And the courts recognize that. You can't, heavens, as we've talked about in this class, you can't prove to me that you're not just in the middle of an extremely vivid dream right now. Now, we know reasonably you're not, and I'm not. We've got reasons to believe that, but 100% absolute proof? Even if you're 100% certain, that's not 100% proof. So what the law says is there are different burdens of proof. If this is a criminal case, before you can take away someone's liberty, you have to be able to prove what really happened beyond a reasonable doubt. The juror has to say, you know, I don't have any reasonable doubts about this. I believe this is what happened, beyond any reasonable doubt. In a civil case, it's different. In a civil case, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's what's called the preponderance of the evidence. It's what's more likely than not. It's a little bit easier to get there. If you think back about the O.J. Simpson trial... The criminal jury found him not guilty because they looked 
and said, beyond a reasonable doubt, we cannot say that he's guilty. But then they retry him in a civil case where the burden of proof is just, well, what's more likely than not? Guilty. And that's what those juries did. They had a different burden of proof. That's important because when you start looking at the resurrection of Jesus... We should never be asking a scientific question of where is the scientific proof. Because it's not a scientific question. We don't even have the testing equipment there. You can't do science on this. We don't have a a, a doctor there with the machines hooked up to verify that he was dead. We don't have closed circuit cameras in the tomb. We don't have a a DNA test. But even those things, if we had them, aren't 100% reliable. What we do have, the evidence that we have, we have to assess under a different burden of proof. It's not like mathematics. It's what's more reasonable to believe. What's more likely than not? Or beyond a reasonable doubt, take either one of them. I don't care. Because I think the resurrection of Jesus is easily provable by either one of those standards. So with the burden of proof in hand, what's the evidence? Now let's get into it. I want to start with eyewitnesses. I want to tell you about four eyewitnesses who wrote up their account of what they saw. These are eyewitnesses. You get to pass on their credibility. Let's hear what they had to say. First of all, Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He read. He wrote. He was a numbers guy. He kept detailed records. And his life depended upon it because he worked for the state. He was a government employee, a bureaucrat who collected money for the Infernal Revenue Service. That was his job. Not well-liked, I might add. But here's this guy, and he gets called out of the tax collector's booth to follow Jesus. He follows him for three years at least. He knows the guy. He knows who he is. He's living with him. He's eating with him. He's sleeping with him. He's working with him. Day in, day out, 365 days a year, Year after year after year. He says, this is what I saw. I I saw the crucifixion. I'm an eyewitness. I saw that Jesus was dead. I'll testify he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. I'll testify that a Roman guard was put over his tomb. I'll testify that there was an earthquake. And I'll testify that the tomb was empty and, 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 and... Whoops, that came out of order. I'll testify the tomb was empty because Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went and saw it. And I'll testify that the explanation that was given where the priest bought off the Roman guards and said, Hey, here's some money. If you'll tell someone that you fell asleep on guard duty and you never woke up while this massive multi-ton stone was rolled away... You just slept right through it, doubled up on your ambient, boom, you were out. Added some antihistamine just to make sure. 
So they even rolling away this huge stone. They sneak in there. They unwrap this body, leave the burial clothes, haul this dead body out. All the while you're sleeping. And oh, by the way, if you get in trouble for this, since your life is on the line as a good Roman guard, we'll clear it with the authorities. Not a well thought out explanation. I mean, my immediate thought is, it's kind of like when one of your kids rats on another kid. Her eyes were open during the prayer. And you know this because... <laughs> okay, how can we say we were asleep? And we slept through the whole thing. All these apostles came up here, rolled away the stone while we were sleeping. And would you like us to identify them? I mean, if you're asleep, how do you know who stole the body? So the explanation, all of this Matthew gives us. What about John? Eyewitness. John gives very, 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 very much the same information, but he gives some different details. Not surprising. He wrote at a different time and he was a different person. He was actually at the foot of the cross, not just somewhere else watching. But John not only tells us that, but he goes back further and gives us details about the prayer of Jesus before. That Jesus actually prayed, actually told his disciples, I'm going to go away, but I will come back. And the disciples didn't understand. But Jesus gave this prayer about how he and the Father were one and he'd be returning to the Father, wanted the Father to glorify him. Gives more information about the betrayal, about what Judas did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lays it out. Gives more information about Pilate and the trial before Pilate and what happened there. Gives the information about Peter denying Christ three times. Supplements with more information about the spear being thrust into the side of Jesus while he's on the cross. Doesn't just talk about the burial in Joseph's tomb, but adds that Nicodemus was there as well and gives some additional details on that. Talks about not just the Mary seeing him, but talks about Peter and John seeing the resurrected Jesus. Talks about Thomas who had doubts until Jesus appeared. Talked about Jesus being at the side of the sea and cooking breakfast and eating breakfast with the apostles. Jesus eating fish and bread. This is no spiritual apparition. When the spiritual apparition eats bread, it drops right to the ground. We've seen that on TV. This is real flesh and blood Jesus after he was dead. Paul. Testimony of Paul. Paul's not some fly-by-night guy. He comes from a very recognized family. He's got Hebrew roots that grow deep in history. He speaks Hebrew, he speaks Greek, he speaks Latin. He's schooled at the very best Hebrew school they have, at the foot of Gamaliel, a rabbi so famous that we still have many of his sayings today. Paul studies at the feet of... Paul is a Pharisee. He is of the most rigorous group of Hebrews. He follows the law most meticulously. He's the one. Look, the Pharisees arose during the time between the Testaments. The, the Old Testament ended, New Testament started. The Pharisees arose as part of the recognition among Jews that they were continually getting pummeled because they would not honor God and His law. 
It happened in the Old Testament. It happened in between the Testaments. And so the Pharisees rose up and said, we will follow it to the nth detail. And anybody who doesn't follow it will be killed before all of Israel is wiped out. And Paul was zealous. Paul wasn't a hater. He was a zealot for God's truth. And Paul was persecuting the church. And Paul cast his vote for Stephen to be stoned. And Paul held the coats of those stoning Stephen. Because he thought the the future of Israel was at stake. If Israel did not stay pure and stamp out this heresy. That there was a Messiah that wasn't really a Messiah. That Jesus was resurrected. If that heresy didn't get stamped out, all of Paul's people would perish. And so he stood for that. And he was a persecutor. He was imprisoning men and women of the church. He was doing everything in his power until he was on the road to Damascus. And he saw a bright light and he heard a voice. Who are you? I am the Lord. The Lord? I thought you were dead. No, I'm the Lord. I am Jesus of Nazareth, earthly name, whom you are persecuting. At this point, Paul's blinded. And Jesus tells him, go on into Damascus, go find Ananias. He's going to tell you what to do. You're going to be my missionary. You're going to the Gentiles. Paul does an absolute 180. A total change. Paul's entire life changes on a dime. Paul writes to the Corinthians firsthand. This is eyewitness. Paul says, this is what Paul wrote. There's not a scholar in the world today with all of the doubters and all of the cynics and all of the unbelievers who deal with the Bible, with all of the garbage that's put out in press about the Bible, no one doubts that these are the words of Paul. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And at one point in time, he appeared to hundreds of people all at once. And a bunch of them are still alive, Corinthians, if you want to go ask them yourself. And you don't make that bold a proclamation if you're bluffing. So we've got these eyewitnesses. What else do we have? We've got secondary witnesses. These are people who didn't actually witness it themselves, but have credible testimony. This is the gospel of Mark. This is the gospel of Luke. These are the gospels that add more information about more of what Jesus did, more about the burial in the tomb, more about uh, the the, uh, 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 whole process of who all saw Jesus afterwards. Talked about the road to Emmaus and Jesus' revelations there and, and his appearance to his apostles. Luke is not some nimrod who's doing this. He's a physician. He's well-trained. He's very literate. Some of the best written Greek in the New Testament from the pen of Luke. And Luke is the one who's, as a doctor, who's good at taking a history. And Luke's the one who says, Theophilus, I have researched this. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. Here's what they've told me. This is hearsay. But it is admissible hearsay in a court of law. Because all of those witnesses who said it, their lives were on the line for saying it. And the idea that someone would write it up, you got killed for believing this. 
Let's keep going. In addition to those secondary witnesses, there are others. There are the church fathers, countless thousands who gave their lives as martyrs because they believed it. Not just the church fathers. We can look at Roman historians. Look at Gaius Tacitus, or first Josephus, 93 A.D., now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. Now, Josephus has been preserved for us by the church. And so there are likely some insertions in this text that the church added. I think that clause, he was the Christ, is one of them. I haven't segregated out those clauses because scholars dispute it. But scholars do not dispute that he at least is referencing, when he's writing 93 to 94 AD from Rome, history for the Romans about the Jews, scholars don't dispute the fact generally that at least he's referencing Jesus and at least the part about Pilate at the suggestion of the principal men among us condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. He appeared to them alive again the third day. May be added. That may be added. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, that may be added. But the statement that he was the Christ, the statement that he was there, the tribe of Christians. There's another place where Josephus says he was the brother of James, the just. Scholars readily admit that. Here's a Roman historian, 93 AD, who considers Jesus Christ important enough to be in history. It's from him the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. That wasn't an ad of the church. Gaius Tacitus. 116, Roman historian, talked about Nero burning Rome. And to get rid of the report that Nero himself had done it, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, the extreme penalty, crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. That Jesus was resurrected. In fact, it not only broke out in Rome, but during the reign of the emperor Suetonius, which is while Paul was doing his mission work, Suetonius had all of the Jews evicted from Rome because they were fighting over whether or not Christ was resurrected. And we have that from Roman history, as well as from Acts, where we read that Aquila and Priscilla were kicked out of Rome when the Jews were and went to Corinth. So we have these histories. We have that information. Now the burden of proof, credibility. What's the mental condition of these people? You read the writings of Paul. Let's just pull him out in the interest of time. You read the writings of Paul. What was his mental condition? This fellow could quote poetry. This fellow was sharp. He knew current events. He could quote scripture. He could, he could discourse with the wisest and with the least. He had conversations of intellect with the smart men in the Areopagus at Athens. 
He was able to hold his own in trials before King Agrippa. This is not a man. You, I've, I've been around deranged people. I've been in a courtroom where a man asked the judge for leniency because he was the Pope's father. I've been in a courtroom with two different people who were convinced they were Jesus. I've seen those who don't have mental stability. The writings of Paul are not those of a mentally unstable, unstable person. What are about his motives? What saying? This is not Paul's going to make a couple million dollars and start a movement. This is Paul. He lists to the Corinthians. He says, do you know how many times I've been beaten? How many times I've been robbed? I've lost my family. I've lost my money. He's not, and I won't even, he says, collect money from you for what I'm doing because I don't want anybody to impugn my motives. I'll build tents. I'll mend tents. I'll support myself as I travel all over the world. I'll get shipwrecked multiple times. I'll throw everything away because everything I have is garbage compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. I'm that convinced that I will totally change my life. He had no motive beyond truth. Character? All of these men are above reproach. You can read about James, the brother of Jesus, getting thrown from the top of the temple, being stoned, because he believed his brother was resurrected from the dead. James the just with a great reputation among Hebrews. These aren't charlatans. These aren't fly-by-nights. These are men who lived in their community. These aren't men who claim to have gotten some tablets that they translated on Hill Cumorah, but then had to go all the way to Utah because they got chased away by the people who knew the truth. These are people who lived who saw from a nucleus of just a few people the gospel spread and take over the entire known world because of a bunch of fishermen? Comparisons. I'm going to tell you something as a lawyer. You get five, six, seven witnesses who use the exact same words and tell the exact same story in just the exact same way And I guarantee you they got together to do it. Because different people see things differently. One person will see the the car run through the red light and will notice that there were two cars off to the right. Another person may not notice the two cars off to the right. They'll talk about the car running the red light and they'll talk about how the person was on the cell phone at the time. Another person won't mention the cell phone because they weren't at an angle to be able to see the cell phone. They're going to talk about how afterwards the person got out of their car and went running back saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I wasn't paying attention. All of those are true. But that's what you really have. You go back to the stories of the Gospels and that's what you have. They don't all just give lock, stock, barrel the exact same story. It is not. A conspiracy put into publication. It's accounts of the witnesses given very realistically. And all of them agree 
Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He died on the cross. He was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea and put into his tomb. He was wrapped. He was, uh, the tomb was sealed. The guard was put there. He was dead when he went in. And he was resurrected and that tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. The clothes were in there. And Jesus appeared physically. A physical Jesus. Not once. Not twice. But time and time again. Hearsay. Inadmissible unless you have exceptions. One of the exceptions is given in another proceeding. Look at Paul's speech in Acts that he gave in his trial. It's admissible even though Luke wrote it down instead of Paul. Luke was the court reporter. It's admissible under the court of law. He lays it out in that speech. But let me go further and say all of these people were giving statements that would cost them their lives. We've got to get out of our 20th century mentality and get into the mentality of people who were giving statements that would cost them their lives and everything they had and the lives of those they hold dear. Junk science, a word here. Some might say, well, wait a minute. There's no science that says God resurrects from the dead. Time out. There's no science that say you and I can raise people from the dead. But if God is the God beyond the universe, if God's the God we've been talking about in this class, if God is the one who, is, who, who, who reckons and holds this universe in place, if God is the creator of all things, then he absolutely can raise from the dead just as sure as two plus two is four. And don't sit there and tell me, oh, that's junk science. Junk science says that a deity who created the whole world can't raise from the dead. That's junk science. That's garbage. That's absolute garbage. Bias, sympathy, and prejudice cuts both ways. There are some people who say, I believe. Why? Well, I just do. I grew up in a family and that's all there is to it. I'm not going to think about it. I believe. Okay, well, you don't get to sit as a witness in this case if that's the way you feel. You may be right. I think you are right. But let's recognize that you're not in a position to at least dispute it with others if it's just how you feel and you hadn't thought about it. By the same token, there's another group of people. There are a group of people who say, well, I just don't believe that there's a God like that. Well, I just don't believe that that can be done. Well, that I, if, unless I can see it, I just won't believe it. That bias and that sympathy and that prejudice would stop that person from being on this jury in a court of law. If that person's not willing to accept the truth of what is going to be presented and has already made up their minds, they have no business sitting on the jury. Now, here's the problem. We all are in a position to answer the question. Is this a mega conspiracy? I mean, there's no doubt Jesus was a historical figure. There's no I mean, you don't have to go to the Bible for that. You don't have to go to the Bible for the fact that he was killed. Under Pontius Pilate, you don't have to go to the Bible for the fact that there arose this idea that he, he rose from the dead. You can go to history and get that. Is it a mega conspiracy propagated? I'll tell you, you go back to the Watergate conspiracy, and I put in a Chuck Colson quote at the end of this. In Watergate, you had all these guys working for, the, for President Nixon 
doing this uh, 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 break-in to try and ensure his re-election. And they were loyal to the president. And they were the best of the best. A lot of them with a military background. They cracked. They started singing like birds. Do you honestly think that it can... What is most reasonable under the burden of proof? Is it reasonable to assume under the burden of proof that people, you're going to just happen to get this nucleus of 11 people, 12 if you add the, the added apostle, and, and Paul, you're going to get this nucleus of people, they're going to come up with this mega conspiracy, they're going to manage to doctor all of these different records in such a way as to build up this preposterous idea that is going to so persuade people that thousands will die before they will say, hey, maybe he wasn't resurrected. I just don't see that as reasonable. Especially when the Bible sets out for hundreds of years before the death of Christ a very clear prophetic announcement of what would happen. Especially when the Bible and all that we've talked about in this class up to this point so clearly set out that there is a problem because we have an infinitely perfect and moral God and we are not perfect, we are impure. And that God of cause and effect says sin brings death. You cannot dwell within God forever if you are impure. You cannot take a drop of ink and put it into milk. And say that the milk is 100% milk. It's not. It's got a drop of ink in it. You can't take someone who's impure and put them into God who is 100% pure and say God's 100% pure. He's not. He's a God of cause and effect. So what's he going to do with these people that he loves, that he wants, that he secures for eternity? The only answer is take their sins and die for them so that they can live eternally in a resurrection of Jesus and a new life. Mega conspiracy or the answer to the problem? I think the answer is clear. If your God cannot resurrect from the dead, then your God's definitely too small. Points for home. Whoops, sorry. Point for home one. If Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if all of this is fake, what idiots we are. But he gave and not only staked his life on it, he lived his life on it. He did that 180 turn. Study the life of Paul and you'll have a lot of trouble being an unbeliever. The question then becomes, what difference does my verdict make in my life? Jesus raised from the dead. What difference does that make to me? What will I do for that? Number two, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself. That is not the do-it-yourself network. He was not saying, I've got a celestial hammer and nails and I'm going to go build a celestial home for you and come back and get you as soon as it's done. He's talking there about the cross. That's how Jesus prepared a way for us or a place for us was by dying for our sins. And if he was going to go to the cross and die, he was going to come again and take us to himself, which he did. It doesn't end here. That's next week. Last point. 
Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Do it with gentleness, do it with respect. Peter said that. The eyewitness Peter. Learn this, study this, think about this. It's not only good for others, it's good for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for, Lord, in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. I pray for the power of his resurrection to reverberate. I pray that your faith will come out of our hearts and out of our minds, not as some feeling, but as a reasonable understanding of what you have done to redeem humanity and give you praise and give you glory and fall down before you, worthy only to be in your presence because of the blood of Jesus and confident of our future and our destiny because of his resurrection. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.